So one of the many reasons that I have, over the last 20 years since my conversion to Christianity, remained utterly compelled by the teachings of the Bible is because of Scripture's uncanny ability to explain the human condition and all of the paradoxes that go along with the human condition. There's no other religious writing that makes sense of who we are or why we do what we do, and there's no other religious writing that actually gives us a way forward to truly healing the human condition and the human experience. And that's because we humans, we, we are curious creatures to say the least. Each of us, we long to be seen and we long in our hearts to be known. There is this undeniable desire in every single one of us to be accepted and to be loved just for who we are. And though we desire that more than anything, we still hide ourselves from others around us. We're very careful to cover our weaknesses. We camouflage our fears. We present these false fronts so that the truest parts of ourselves remain unseen. And so scripture tells the story of how that particular paradox of the human condition came to be. In the beginning, we lived, we humans, the story tells us, we lived in perfect community with God and with each other and with creation. And so intimate and so close were these, these, these relationships that Genesis actually says Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. That unashamed nudity that the Bible describes, that Adam and Eve experienced, it was more than just physical nudity. Adam and Eve, they lived under the approving gaze of their creator, and they experienced their naked selves as perfectly seen. They experienced themselves as perfectly adored, God the Father would look on them and they would experience their naked, unashamed selves as valuable and worthwhile and significant. And so, in that garden of safety and unconditional love, they could look on each other and they could know each other and there wasn't any fear, there was no competition, there was no shame, there was no hiding, there was no camouflaging, there was no covering whatsoever. But as the story unfolds, things get a little bit strange if you're new to the Bible. There's this even, e e evil being. He's portrayed as a, a serpent, a talking snake. And he comes and he whispers in the ears of Adam and Eve that maybe their creator is holding out on them. That maybe their idyllic state might be just a little bit less than idyllic. And so Adam and Eve, on the serpent's deceptive counsel... They took God's way of being human, and they redefined it. Adam and Eve took God's way of being human, and they redefined it according to their own standards of right and wrong, good and evil. And in so doing, they took on the ultimate false identity, they took on the identity of God himself. 
And in that moment, they destroyed the inherent beauty and innocence of what it is to be human, to be seen, to be naked, to be unashamed. And nothing in God's world was left untouched by the effects of the human's first sins. Everything was cast into chaos. From the literal physical creation, to culture, to the inner being of Adam and Eve. Sin then separated them from the loving gaze of their creator, and all relationships from that moment on would be flooded with insecurity and fear and jealousy and envy and shame. And so Genesis 3 describes how Adam and Eve hid themselves and covered themselves from God and from each other. Read with me, please. Genesis 3, 6 through 8. It'll be up on the screens for you. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. And this, my dear friends, explains why we do what we do today as humans. This explains the paradox of our desperate desire to be known, to be seen, to be accepted, to be loved, and yet hiding ourselves from God and from each other. It's because the echoes of the garden reverberate in our hearts, and we cover ourselves to this day with these metaphorical fig leaves of success, metaphorical fig leaves of religion, of power, of money, of fame, of sex, of pleasure, of relationship, and a myriad, a million other things that we cover ourselves from each other with and hide ourselves from God through. And yet, the unstoppable hope of the Bible is that God does not give up on us as humans. He doesn't turn from us in anger and disgust. He pursues us with this relentless pursuit. And though we hide from him and though we hide from others, God continues to come after each one of us. And the next line in this Genesis story account of what happened to us is actually a question from God to Adam and Eve. Verse 9 of chapter 3, Genesis. But the Lord God called to the man, asking him, Where are you? Where are you? And that question runs through every story of Scripture all the way to today. God seeking us. God coming after us. Because what God wants from us, what our Creator wants from us, is the real us. The broken us. The vulnerable us. What God wants from us is the uncovered and the unashamed us. And so when the question comes into our souls, where are you? He is getting after who you are in your deeps. Where are you? What are you hiding behind? What coverings can I take off of you so we can be together again? And that is the big idea 
for this fourth session this morning in our Emotionally Healthy Church series. We're asking the question and we're learning this morning, how do we live out of our brokenness and our vulnerability? How do we uncover ourselves once again with God and with each other? Pete Scazzaro, the author that we're following through this series and taking notes from, he says, in emotionally healthy churches, people live and lead out of brokenness and vulnerability. They understand that leadership in the kingdom of God is from the bottom up, not a grasping, controlling, or lording over of others. It is leading out of failure and pain, questions and struggles, a serving that lets go. It is a noticeably, key in on this, it is a noticeably different way of life from what is commonly modeled in the world and unfortunately in many churches. So let's talk here for just a moment about why we continue to struggle so desperately with being broken and vulnerable and transparent before each other. Number one, first, we struggle with this because of our inherent terror, and I mean absolute terror, of being exposed. We are horrified of being exposed. When I, actually, this dream hasn't gone away. I have this recurring dream, and it is absolutely awful. I am in the hallways of my high school, and piled up next to the lockers are piles of jeans, Levi 501 jeans. And the bell is about to ring, and all of my friends, the entire high school is about to flood the hallways. And of course, I look down, and lo and behold, in the skinny, completely naked. And in this dream, I am desperately trying to pull on any pair of jeans that I can before the bell rings, and they're all too small. So I'm literally like trying, and then I'll run and I'll find another pair, and it's like way too big, so it just falls off. And mercifully, mercifully, thank you, God, every time the bell rings, I wake up, no! And I ask myself, what was I doing at school naked? And why did I just leave the school? Like all this like dream psychology, it's just weird stuff. But the point is, the point is, we are terrified not only of physical exposure, we are terrified of any sort of exposure of our innermost being. And you guys, that is because this world hurts us. This world, this world hurts us. We are terrified of being exposed because of pain that we have endured. We have all experienced moments of terrible embarrassment. We've all been laughed at. We've all had those moments of rejection, those moments of mockery. For some in here, you've endured times of terrible cruelty and bullying. And those moments, those moments that we all have in our memory bank, those were times of exposure. And in those moments, there was a tender part of ourselves that could not defend itself. And so we developed these behavioral walls Psychologists talk about how we create parts of our personality to keep those wounded parts of ourselves protected. And so for some of us, uh, you became the tough guy who never cries. You just fight it with fists. Some of us began to present to the world an image of just complete put-togetherness. We don't ever fall apart. Some of us, we retreated into paralyzed silence. And we can spend our lives fleeing from those moments of pain and we avoid it through addictions and distractions or we fight it with outbursts of unchecked anger and rage 
against our circumstances, against others. In our generation and your gen, the Gen Xers and Millennials, we are all right on the precipice of raging against God because of our pain. And that's another vital point. It's not only humans that we dread being exposed to. Just as Adam and Eve were terrified of God after their rebellion, we too flee from him and we try to hide ourselves from him. And so we cover ourselves in religious activity and self-made moral codes. And all of this is our attempt to camouflage those shameful thoughts that we have, those moments where we're like, did I really just think that? Am I really tempted to do that? And we're embarrassed. We're exposed and terrified of God seeing that. And yet, and yet, God comes to us in love. He goes past the layers of behaviors that we hide behind, deep down into places that maybe we haven't experienced for years. He comes after that hurting, tender, hidden part of us. And that is terrifying because letting that hidden, protected part come forth out into the open again, that opens us up to the possibility of more pain, of being hurt again. But to follow Christ is to risk. It is to risk. It is to risk pain. And recognizing, simply recognizing that that terror, that horror that we have of being exposed, recognizing that it's there and that that's normal, that should be expected, and that God himself is so aware of that terror and what produced that terror, that is our first step to surrendering and taking off that first layer of fig leaf covering, of camouflage. That's our first step to living more transparently with God and with others. Scazzaro's in Manhattan. There's another Manhattan pastor, just a juggernaut of a thinker, Tim Keller. And he writes this, to be loved but not known is comforting, but it's superficial. To be known and not loved, that's all of our greatest fears, for sure. But to be fully known and truly loved, well, that's a lot like being loved by God. It's what we need more than anything. It liberates us from pretense. It humbles us out of our self-righteousness. And it fortifies us for any difficulty life can throw at us. Amen. The second reason that we struggle so deeply to live transparently, to live out of our vulnerability, is because our cultural narratives, they command the opposite of brokenness and vulnerability. We swim in an aquarium that tells us these stories that are the exact opposite of what we're talking about this morning. Our culture says you need to be beautiful, you need to be visco-filtered, V-S-C-O, how do you say, do you say visco? I I don't know these things. My wife said you say visco, is it, tell me, somebody help me right now, please. Oh, thank you, God, I don't wanna look like an idiot in front of 700 people. Be beautiful, V-C-S-O, visco-filtered, be plastic, Be upwardly mobile. Make sure you're airbrushed. Keep it all clean. Keep it tight. Just by way of illustration, just show me your hands here. How many of you guys saw the last Avengers movie? Show of hands, please. How many of you didn't see the last Avengers movie? Okay, I'm sorry for you. Spoiler alert. Here we go. (laughs) I have to. This is the illustration. It's it's the way it's going to (laughs) go. You guys... 
Let me just say that the movie does not end a way, the movie does not end in a way that normally our hero movies end. I walked out of the theater going, what? What, what, is, what is happening? Because the way that the movie ends, so many of you raised your hands. I thought all of you had seen the Avengers movie. This is not good. The way that the movie ends, now you're gonna have to go see it this afternoon, which is good. And you're gonna walk out remembering this illustration that our, culture, our cultural narratives tell us the hero never loses. You're gonna be pushed down, you're gonna be beaten down, you may even look like you're gonna be broken, but the hero always rises up, always has ultimate victory, ultimate courage, unstoppable optimism, usually with shiny white teeth, chiseled jaw, and six-pack abs, because that is the way that we fabricate our own reality in our heads. We don't have cultural narratives for breaking, for losing, for failing for not being able to fight off the chocolate cake and have not the six-pack abs. We don't have any of those things. And yet we fabricate this reality for ourselves and we tell ourselves we don't break. And we have no categories in our modern Western cultural narrative that actually value, honor, brokenness, and pain. Schizero again, extremely insightful. He says, our world treats weakness and failure as terminal. It says, you're a loser. God says, this is a universal human experience cutting across all ages, cultures, races, and social classes. It is my gift specially crafted for you so you can lead out of weakness and brokenness, not your own strength and power. Now listen to what Scazzaro says. He says, my understanding was that God wanted to heal my brokenness and vulnerabilities completely. Few consider brokenness as God's design and will for our lives. What? That is the exact opposite of our cultural narratives. And we, modern Americans, we are the first human society in history to be surprised by suffering and pain. The modern American dream has convinced us that failure and pain is wholly and completely detrimental to human flourishing. But the great sages of history, they actually embraced struggle and pain and suffering and even failure as not only necessary to the formation of robust human character, but they celebrated it. And the scriptures are saturated with these ideas. The scriptures develop a robust theology of weakness and vulnerability and brokenness. Just a few examples Jacob wrestles with the angel of God and he doesn't gain ultimate victory, God blessing him. God touches his hip and he is left with a limp that is a physical image of his total broken dependence on God for the rest of his life. Moses stands up to lead millions out of slavery and he mumbles through his sermons, a speech impediment of some sorts. David cannot slay the giant wearing Saul's strong armor, but he has to resort to five humble, simple little stones instead of the mighty swords of men. Jesus' constitution for Christian living, which we spent weeks and weeks in, the Sermon on the Mount, 
Jesus starts with this backwards way of flourishing, of being blessed, and he says it's through being meek, it's through being persecuted, it's through having sorrow of soul. The Bible is absolutely saturated with the theme of weakness, being strong. The oppressed becomes the deliverers, the imprisoned liberate, the unseen are seen by God, and the vulnerable are of inestimable value to God. The New Testament Testament authors, they were so soaked in these truths, and this is why. They knew that ultimately our pain and our weakness and our suffering, they knew that that is what leads to truly deep communion with God. Pain and suffering is what leads to truly deep, intimate communion with God. And they believed that true union with Jesus, which is what this whole kit and caboodle called Christianity is about, that true union with Jesus, that included, our union with Jesus includes an unavoidable personal crucifixion with the expectation and the hope, the sure hope of an absolute resurrection. That's why Paul would audaciously exhort all of us this morning as he spoke to the Romans to rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. James, the brother of Jesus, he agrees wholeheartedly saying outlandishly. When I first started reading the Bible, I was like, what do... What are these people thinking? He says, consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you can be mature and complete, not lacking anything. This theology of brokenness and weakness, it's illustrated most pointedly in St. Paul's letter, the second letter that he wrote to the city of Corinth, the church in Corinth. In chapter 12, Paul describes great visions that he'd been given as he was caught up in the spirit. And he was sharing these things with the Corinthian church not to impress them. He was trying to shepherd them and guard them from liars. He was trying to compel them towards the truth. And so as, this, as, it, as he was telling this story, he expressed it humbly uh, in the third person. So we read in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, beginning in verse 2. Paul says, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether it was in the body or out of the body, I don't know. God knows. And I know that this man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I don't know. But God knows. He was caught up to paradise. And he heard inexpressible things. Things that no one is permitted to tell. This was a big deal. So Paul could have gone to the Corinthians. Could have been filled with pride and strength. Corinthians, I've been chosen as God's instrument to write the bulk of the New Testament. Trust me. Paul, Paul could have lived into his identity as one of the most influential humans, in my opinion, that has ever existed on this planet. Paul, Paul could have presented to the Corinthians his gift set, his abilities. But instead, instead, he, he points them to his weakness to compel them to truth. Picking up in verse 5. I will boast about a man like that, but I won't boast about myself, except about my weaknesses. Even if I should choose to boast, I would not be a fool, 
because I would be speaking the truth, but I refrain so no one will think more of me than is warranted by what I do or say or because of these surpassingly great revelations. Therefore, in order to keep me from becoming conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, Paul says, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. (laughs) Paul's brokenness and vulnerability with the Corinthians, it was so pronounced that he refused to pull the, you know, I'm an appointed apostle given visions of heaven card. He He didn't pull that card with them. He pointed them towards his weaknesses. And what you need to see in this passage is that the weaknesses that Paul was enduring, they were weaknesses that God was allowing. Paul calls them a thorn in the flesh. We don't know what what it was. Some think it was an eye disease. Some think it was uh, a a mental health disorder, bipolar, like depression. We don't know. Some think it was just a full-on demonic constant attack. And Paul pleaded with Jesus, please take this away. Please take my pain away. Please take my anxiety away. Please take my jealousy and envy and insecurity away. And Jesus' response to Paul's pleading is the key to our own ability to walk in weakness and vulnerability with each other and God. Please take this away. It hurts. My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Beloved, the great lie that originally caused us to cover ourselves with fig leaves and hide from God in the garden was that we could be as powerful as God, that we could be like God. So far went that lie, we believe that we could be God ourselves. God, though, the true and living creator of all things in his grace, He highlights our weaknesses and our vulnerabilities as he guides us not to shame us or to expose us, but to bring us back into dependence upon his power once again. Our vulnerabilities and our brokenness, these are pathways back to the garden. Our weakness and our vulnerabilities, these are pathways back to living in right relationship with our creator. And Paul so embraced this truth that his boasts were now about how much God was going to work through his weaknesses. It's absolutely incredible. Let's finish this passage, verses 9 through 10. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That's why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Paul had embraced his brokenness as a gift. Mind blown. Wow. Embracing our failures, flaws, inhibitions, insecurities, anxieties, points of depression, and weakness as a gift is a pathway back to the garden, back to right relationship and dependence on God. What Paul did is he took off his metaphorical fig leaves in front of the Corinthian church, and he delighted in everything that was rough and tough 
painful and problematic in his life because he believed that Christ's power was a greater covering. So here's the real question. Here's the rub. Start landing the plane. How do we do this? We haven't been caught up to the third heaven, visions that we can't tell anybody about. I mean, maybe you have. I don't know. How can we slowly overcome this, this, this incessant terror of exposure? And how can we, layer by layer, become more confident in Jesus' power and grace to cover us so that we don't need to cover ourselves any longer? Just a few takeaways, and we'll come to communion this morning. Lots of slides coming for you guys that take pictures. The way of living broken and vulnerable in this world. First of all, we have to self-assess. We have to self-assess. This means... On a Sunday morning, in the middle of a sermon, we have to step back and we have to say, God, where am I? We have to hear him come to us and say, where are you? What are you hiding behind? What coverings are keeping you hidden from other people and from me? Uh, Scazzaro, again, he has this really kind of a jarring, <laughs> incisive set of statements that as I was meditating on them, it makes you very uncomfortable. Uh, but I think they're so helpful for helping us assess how much we're covering ourselves or living transparently before each other. And, and so let's just take a moment here and look at these slides, look at these statements, and, and take a big, deep breath down into your belly. God is coming to you. He's so gentle. He, he loves you so much. And through these statements, he's saying, where are you, kiddo? Where, where are you? And all these statements do is they just gently peel off the fig leaves, the coverings, the camouflage that we all wear. Number one, number one, I often admit when I'm wrong, readily asking forgiveness from others. So the ability to say, okay, oops, I was the wrong one in that. Uh, if you're not married, you just sign up for that statement every single day of your life. <laughs> I was wrong. Number two, uh, I am able to speak freely about my failures, weaknesses, and mistakes. Number three, others would describe me as approachable, uh, gentle, open, and transparent. Number four, those close to me would say that I am not easily offended or hurt. <clears throat> That one killed me. I'm like a little baby. I, anything anybody says, just like, so painful. Number five, I am consistently open to receiving constructive criticism and feedback that others might have from me. Number six, I am rarely judgmental or critical of others. Oh, man. Ouch. Number seven, Others would say, I'm slow to speak, quick to listen, and good at seeing things from their perspective. We preachers have major problems with that. And then I wanted to add one more statement to this as well that I think is important for our generation in particular. When in pain, I don't adopt a victim mentality or a self-pitiful attitude. The reality is, loved ones, our, our culture is a horrific culture. It is a culture that victimizes people, and God is absolutely at war with it. We live in a victim culture. But we also, as we swim in this aquarium of victimization, uh, 
we can make our own moments of either being victimized or victimizing somebody our identity. And so then our pain becomes our identity. And self-pity and navel pondering becomes our way of being in the world. But for us as Christians, our core identity is not victim. You may have been victimized. Terrible pain. But that is not your identity. Our pain does not define us. Our pain is a pathway back to the garden. It's what propels us to Jesus and his goodness. And that leads us to our next step in living out of brokenness. Second step. Second takeaway from this morning. we got to self-assess. Let God ask us, where are you? And then we cannot ignore or avoid pain, but we have to let that pain bring out, bring out the true us. So last week, uh, we were at a worship time during song at a retreat that our team was at uh, in Malibu, and we were singing that song, uh, Reckless Love. And I was singing, I mean, with all my might, with everything I had, those bridge lyrics, there's no shadow, you won't light up, no mountain, you won't climb up coming after me. There's no wall you won't kick down. There's no lie you won't tear down. Coming after me, and hands are raised, and I sense the presence of God, and I hear the people singing. It's beautiful. And as I'm singing that lyric, that particular lyric, there's no lie you won't tear down. I had the vivid, very vivid imagery of an African plain, and I was standing out on the African plain, and this huge lion is charging me. And I turn to run, and I feel it come around my body with its claws, and I feel it shred into my guts. I feel the searing pain of its bite come down on the back of my skull, and I go down, and in this vivid vision, I feel this lion mauling me and tossing me about like a rag doll, and it was vivid. It was overwhelming. I could feel it in my senses, in my mind. And as I'm watching this gigantic lion maul me essentially to death, suddenly I find myself standing off to the side of the scene in in my body again, away from the lion, and I'm just watching it unfold now. Now, it was still tearing at my body as I was watching it in in this vision thing. But my body that the lion was tearing, it was like dark. It was like kind of fuzzy and like gray. So it looked like me, and and it looked like my body, but it was grayed out and dark and fuzzy. But the vision, as as I watched it unfold, the body that I was watching this happen from, my body, as I'm watching my body, my gray body, like weird body, be torn up by this lion, this body was like unharmed and super healthy and and without any blood or anything on it. It was perfectly healed. And as I pondered this, I just, I got it. God, God was showing me, I believe, that what I experience a lot of times in this life as, as ripping pain and tearing anxiety in my guts and that, that constant horrific fear or, or for a person like me, terrible anger, all of that stuff, all of those moments of ripping and tearing, that was all my faults and my untrusting and my unsurrendered self. The, the dark and the fuzzy and the, and the camouflaged and the faults and the gray fronts and behaviors that I presented to the world, the lion, the lion was not ripping and tearing down the real Dan, the tender and soft, innocent Dan. 
he was tearing down all of the false me's. You know, we have a value here at Park Hill of just being transparent. So here's my turn in the middle of the sermon. As long as I can remember, this is how the lies work with us. This is how the lies work. This is completely illogical. It's irrational. But for as long as I can remember, I have had this innate narrative that I am not enough. That I'm not good enough to be loved. This sounds so strange saying it out loud in front of hundreds of people, but the reality is I have always felt out of place, insecure, like I don't belong, like I don't have a home, like I'm not approved, like I'm not accepted. I have had this lifelong narrative that, that there are those around me that God looks at and just pours out what I want, and he looks at me and kind of curls his lip, oh, and turns away. And I've done a lot of therapy over the years, and I'm in therapy right now. And what I realize is, like, looking back on my life, uh, I partied hard. And the reason I partied, if I go underneath the layers enough, is because I needed to avoid that feeling. I wanted to be accepted. I was a complete wild child, huge risk taker. And I, as, as I look back on it, it was like twofold. So I would bungee jump off of bridges and skydive out of planes, and I would downhill ski race at 60 miles an hour, both because I had this insatiable need to feel alive. Like, that's a holy thing. I wanted to just suck the marrow out of life and live it. But on the other side of all of those extreme things was I needed somebody to tell me that I was significant. And so if I could ooh and awe somebody with speed or jumping out of a plane, then I would risk my life for it. Even in this moment, here I am right now at the age of 41. I have three beautiful kids and my incredible wife. And we're part of this, this incredible ministry, this, I can't even describe the team that we're on. We have all of, and I am so loved and part of these things. And yet every day you still wrestle. I still wrestle with this. Am I truly cared for without doing it right? <laughs> Can I risk believing that I am loved for who I am or do I have to make sure that I do it right so I can be accepted? And that is all false. It's false. So much of speaking alongside you and with you now, so much of your anxiety this morning and your fear and your pain, if you're honest, it's rooted in, in our commitment to keeping control of people's perceptions of us. Our anxiety is we're trying to keep those camouflages and those coverings on. So much of our fear and anxiety is keeping control of our circumstances as we think they should be rather than just a deep, surrendered trust in God as he's working. The incomparable C.S. Lewis. In his classic children's novels, The Chronicles of Narnia, he depicted the Christ character as a massive lion named Aslan. In the early parts of the story, the children, they're starting to learn about this mysterious figure, this savior who's gonna come and deliver Narnia and as they're talking with these two beavers, this deliverer's character and his nature, like who he is, is beginning to be revealed to them. And we read this as the beavers explain to little Lucy and Susan who Aslan is. Aslan is a lion, the lion. He's the great lion, said Mr. Beaver. Oh, 
said Susan. I, th I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe? said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he is good. He's the king, I tell you. Church, Aslan, the great lion, the king, there is no lie that he is not going to tear down in your life. He is not safe. He is going to rip to shreds any false part of us that keeps us hidden from him and hidden from each other because he is good. He's the king. And so as we come this morning to communion, the final piece to really finally being able to live into this vulnerability and this transparency. We recognize our terror. We allow God to come ask us, where are you? The pain and the anxiety that is there, we allow it to lead us to the true us as Aslan rips to shreds the faults, fronts, and the masks that we present to the world around us. And finally, we apprentice ourselves to Jesus, Aslan, the great lion, the unsafe one, but the good one, from the foot of the cross and through the resurrection. The revelator John saw this raging lion slaughtered as a lamb in our place. Jesus, our God, he endured the ultimate stripping and exposure at the cross to set you and I free from our fears. When he comes to us as Aslan, he simultaneously comes to us as a lame, as a lamb slain, tender and innocent and gentle, stripped and exposed. What Jesus did is he took upon himself and he absorbed into himself all of our lies, all of our insecurities, all of our shames, all of our masks, so that we could be free. The God who was unbroken became broken for you and I. The invulnerable creator of the universe became vulnerable in the most ultimate way for you and I so that we can come to him in safety and be healed by him and be strengthened by him. And the great glory of the story of the Bible that has compelled me now for over 20 years is that the lion, the lamb slain, did not stay in the grave. Three days after the death of Jesus of Nazareth, this Jewish itinerant rabbi, crucified by the Roman Empire, this roar, a roar that whispered through all of creation, ripped and crushed the lies of the serpent and the power of death as the literal, historical, physical body of Jesus of Nazareth was raised from the grave. He's alive. And so today, he invites us to live into our brokenness and into our vulnerability because we are in the safe hands of our good God. 
The truth is, for all of us in this room, with terror and fear today, he has filled us with the same resurrection power that raised Jesus from the dead so that we can go on this morning and today and this week until the day we meet him, growing in our confidence, not fearing, not hiding. Nothing can take us from the love and the acceptance that we have in Jesus Christ because of his life, because of his cross, because of his resurrection. So we can take off the camouflage and the coverings. As we prepare to come to communion now, I would invite us all to just pray that in and we let it pour over every aspect of our being. This morning as we come to the table with Jesus, the bread reminding us of his broken body, the cup reminding us of his spilled blood, we can invite him to ask us at the foot of the cross, where are you? We can see him stripped and shamed in our place so that we are no longer stripped and shamed. And this morning as we partake of communion together, we can remember that Jesus Christ is literally alive. He's literally alive right now. And soon and very soon, we are going to be made unbroken. We will be healed. And do you guys want to know what part of will make the kingdom of God the kingdom of God? We once again will know each other and see each other and accept each other without shame. This is why the Bible points us towards true hope. One day, all of us are going to see each other perfectly in the light of Jesus, seeing the light of each other for all of eternity. It's very, very good news. Let me pray for us, and we'll have the band come up, and we're going to begin to sing. Father, uh, these, these topics of being human are sometimes hard to handle. But God, you are good. You're the great lion who comes and tears down the faults fronts that we put on, and you don't do it in anger. You're very specific in tearing down lies. This morning, insecurities are being exposed, vulnerabilities are being exposed, confusion is being exposed, doubt, depression. But these things we embrace this morning as a gift to push us into the presence of God, for us to surrender our definitions of being human. Lord, we come back to the garden this morning through the, through the tree, not the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, but the tree of Christ, our King, crucified. And where you told Adam and Eve, don't eat, you tell us, eat, I invite you, partake of myself, I'm one with you. May each of these precious souls that you created and breathed life into today, may they hear you ask them so gently, where are you? And may they respond, may they respond by bodily becoming vulnerable before you and before other humans. We're safe at the foot of the cross and in the power of the resurrection. And God, more than ever, this world, this world needs humans that will live out the garden realities, that will live into brokenness and vulnerability as a pathway back to what is good and true and right. Dependence on God, not defining our humanness as we see right and wrong, but defining it according to you and trusting you, trusting that you know what is best for us. So we exalt you now in Jesus' name, amen. We're gonna sing that tune. I asked Evan and Jordan if they would open this communion set with reckless love. And I wanna invite you, um, I know this, maybe I'm just imposing on you my own experience, but I think, I think it's helpful. I want to invite you to be reckless in your response to God in song. 
Like, for, for just the next 20 minutes, as we sing to Jesus, I want you to believe that he is recklessly pursuing you right now. Yeah. Right now. The God who made the stars and the suns and the moons, the crashing waves and the mountaintops, he is head over heels in love with you, coming after you, but I want you to respond to him recklessly. And what I mean by that is, okay, I, I have pitch problems when I sing. I'm going to sing really loud. Yeah. And I'm going to ask you who sing on pitch to join in the pitchiness of the one next to you with celebration that we together as a community are going to recklessly respond to the Spirit of God. Is he safe? No. This is not safe. We're, we're like, we're saying, okay, tear down the walls that I, I'm going to sing off pitch as loud as I can. That's a huge step. As we're singing, responding recklessly to God, I want to invite some of you to actually bodily respond by coming forward and being vulnerable and being prayed for. Yeah. Literally saying, I don't care what anybody thinks. I don't know what they think. It doesn't matter anymore. My reckless God pursued me, and I want to live into the brokenness and the vulnerabilities that I have as a gift so that I can give my king back to this world in a healthy way. Out of love for others, out of love for your neighbors and friends and family members, come forward and be vulnerable. Be human again. Parkill, can we just be human again? I'm so tired of not being human. It's just exhausting. It's absolutely exhausting. You guys are exhausted. I'm just going to tell you the truth. You're exhausted trying to keep it covered, trying to keep it together. Can we just fall apart for 20 minutes and let him meet with us and put us back together? This is Christianity. Not some weird religious facade, not some political agenda. It is humans with their God. Yeah. And so let's respond. Let's respond recklessly. Come forward for prayer. Some of you need, I would ask our community leaders to come forward and pray for people up front. Uh, just respectfully for the nature of intimacy of prayer, if women could pray with women and men pray with men as we line up here on the sides. But be bold this morning during this first song. And then Evan will lead us in a communion meditation. And maybe Jesus will return. <laughs> this whole thing will be done. Wouldn't that be nice? <laughs> Father, bless our time now. In Jesus' name, amen.